So thank you so much, Yasmin, for joining on the Flying Stage podcast. I'm really excited to chat with you. I know it's been a while since we've catched up. And I'm always, yeah, whenever I hear about the work that you're doing, I'm always super stoked because I think what you're doing is, is not only really important, but it's also really difficult. I think the intersection of where you are at in the space compared to maybe some of the other people I've chatted with is like, you're really like at the front of things. And especially with all the work that you're doing, dealing with the government, Health Canada, all that, it's super important. And I really admire the work that you do. So I'm really, yeah, honored, happy that you join on Flying Stage podcast. And yeah, I just want to extend some thanks to you. So thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you, Michael. It's an honor to be here. And I too am looking forward to catching up. Beautiful. So I'm going to jump right into some of the questions that I had for you here. I always like to ask this question to guests from the podcast. And that's just, if you could share a little bit about, or sorry, share a little bit with us about where your journey with psychedelics started. Yeah, absolutely. So I was first introduced to psychedelics. I'd of course been hearing about them for many years, but I was first introduced on a trip to New York with my friend. She had been working with 5-MeO-DMT with veterans down in Mexico. And I, when she was telling me about it, I, my first reaction was, oh gosh, that, that sounds really scary. And what are you doing? And are you going to end up in jail? Please, please, please be careful. And after that initial conversation, I started getting very interested and me and my old boss started having some conversations about it. He had some experience with psychedelics and I started just, just inquiring a little bit more, reading mm -hmm. some books, talking to my friend from New York and just began microdosing. And so I had, when I had been seeking out counseling, psychiatry, coaching, different prescriptions for many, many years since my dad died and nothing seemed to actually be working. So when my friends started telling me about the therapeutic effects, I, I became very interested, but was still quite hesitant. So I began microdosing and definitely felt the positive effects of that. And then we went to Bowen one day actually, and had my first psilocybin experience. And it was it was so beautiful, but it also made, made me feel safe that, you know, these substances had so much potential. And so after that experience, I continued having, experimenting with other psychedelic experiences, but in a therapeutic context and the relief I had was, was life-changing. And so I had moved forward with a retreat experience with Enfold Institute and in this experience, I was, I met my dad again after wow. 14 years of not speaking to him and he forgave me and I met him at his funeral and I met him in heaven. And I just, since that experience after proper integration, the, re the what I was missing in all of those counseling sessions, I, I was able to find and just had so much relief and peace from that experience that I wanted, wanted others to have that experience and to have, and of course, psychedelics are not for everyone, but I wanted to really help expand access. Wow. That's so powerful. It sounds like such a meaningful experience to be able to have that meaningful interaction with your, your late father. Wow. And that was with your second psycho experience. Right. And your first one was was slightly different. That was with psilocybin. 
That's right. That's right. Yeah. So I started with microdosing psilocybin, then had a larger psilocybin experience. And then yes, it was with a 5-MeO DMT experience. Wow. Wow. So powerful. That's incredible. Thanks for sharing kind of about your origin story there. And I'd be curious to know how you went from like that initial curiosity that you shared about to then having your own first experiences. And then now like you're, you know, established yourself, like working in the psychedelic space and you have been doing that for a couple of years now. I'd be curious to know like what, what did that transition look like from personal curiosity, personal like transformational experience, and then now like leading to pursue a career in the field of psychedelic therapy and then eventually join the Therosol team. What did that transition look like? Yeah, for sure. So I was working at an amazing organization before and my, my boss went on sabbatical. And so he knew Spencer, who's Theracil's CEO, and he was an advisor to Theracil. And so when this role came up at Theracil for the training director, he introduced me and said it likely would be a perfect fit. So prior to this, I had heard about Theracil a handful of times and the amazing advocacy work they were doing. But it really did feel like a perfect intersection of all of my passions. So prior to beginning working with Theracil, I was volunteering at the Canadian Cancer Society for five or six years in an event chair capacity. And I had been, of course, very interested in psychedelics and had had been working on a training program too. So when this opportunity came up, it kind of seemed too good to be true. And then I put my head down before my interview and started reading about Theracil. And it was just very, very clear at that moment that I really wanted to be part of this team. And it, and it felt like a dream job to me. And then to, to join the to join the team, it, it became more evident that I'm so incredibly lucky to be working at Theracil in the field and, and really supporting broadening access at a legal front in Canada. Yeah, absolutely. That must have been really awesome to to see like the intention that you had going into, you know, working with psychedelics and then like personally and then coming out of those experiences, recognizing the need for access and even just like having that desire to help on that front. And then having this kind of position come up must have been so, yeah, it must have been like, must have felt too good to be true, like you say. So that's really incredible. It's crazy like how what, how much can change just from like a simple introduction, right? And in your case, like a simple connection made here, connection made there, and and there you are. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. What's the growth been like? Like, what's it been like working with Aerosol? Do you mind sharing a little bit more about, or giving a little bit of a time frame? Also, just like when did you start working with Aerosol? How long has it been now? And what's your journey kind of been like overall working with Aerosol? Absolutely. So I joined Aerosol just over two years ago on March eighth. And the reason I say March 8th is because on March 1st, our training program launched in the beta stage. And this was a pretty big, this was a big event for Theracil because back in August of 2021, so six months prior, they Theracil had supported the first patients in Canada and accessing legal psilocybin for therapeutic uses. And a few months after that, the first healthcare professionals in accessing psilocybin for training. So a natural next step was to create a training program. And that's that's what launched on March 1st of 2021. And the reason for that was, okay, we've got, we, we're supporting patients. We need trained healthcare professionals to support these patients in going through all stages of a psychedelic experience from preparation, 
to dosing, to integration. So when we launched our training program, it's very different than it is now. We've had a lot of growth over the last two years. We, we were really focused on how to safely and effectively guide a person through a psilocybin experience. And so over the last two and a bit years, our program has grown and evolved based on our learnings mm-hmm. from originally launching in the middle of COVID. So our training program originally launched online and it was launched across Canada and it was it was amazing to launch, but we had so many learnings. And so over the last couple of years, we've trained about 450 healthcare professionals in how to safely and effectively guide a psilocybin, guide a patient through a psilocybin experience. But now our, the bulk of our training is done in person. And I think that's what really differentiates our training program from other trainings, because in our eyes, and Michael, you would know this firsthand from all the amazing events you lead in Vancouver that are in-person events, Mm -hmm. Uh, the beauty and the depth you get from training in person and creating that safe container that's necessary to do this work is it's unparalleled, right? You cannot get that same experience online. So that was one of the major shifts that allowed us to grow at the rate that we're growing was moving from online to in person and having an experiential component in the form of breathwork as part of our training. So people, participants can enter an altered state and also have that hands-on experience sitting for their learning partner. Yeah. Wow. It really is such a big pivot when you think about it. Like you guys were focused on supporting access and then pivoting now to training. I mean, there's obviously lots of similarities and you're you're ultimately trying to support this one overall arc, this arc of the you know patients having safe access. And a big part of that is like obviously having people that are trained. So it, it makes a lot of sense, but from an operational point of view and from a the perspective of like the organization, like I can imagine that being like such a big shift. I'm curious to know, like, what were some of the catalysts for that shift uh, to happen? I mean, obviously, like you said, you had um, a lot more demand coming into the sphere for these experiences. And then you guys probably looked around and were like, oh, wow, there's not really a lot of people that can actually offer this sort of service. So was it just a matter of like looking at, obviously, well, it was a matter of looking at the the need that needed to be filled, but like what made you or the Theracell team feel like Theracell could take this on? I'd, I'd be curious to know, like, what was that decision process like to, to make that pivot? So I have to give a lot of the credit to our training committee who, who really helped steer the training organization. And we've got some fantastic trainers. And so in in working with them, in looking at the feedback, in looking at the other training offerings, it just became a no-brainer. We, you know, we're asking people to do this very, very sacred work. How do we build that trust with them? How do we give them the tools they need to succeed? And meeting online for two hours a week is, it's fantastic. You know, like it's, I think you can have online training programs and they can Mm -hmm. be really successful, but for the quality that we were wanting, we are like, let's bring down our numbers. Let's make these cohorts very intimate for the time being to get our training program up and running. And let's, let's see if it makes a huge difference. So it was really a bit of a trial and error. And once again, online does have its place when you're trying to, to reach, you know, audiences across the globe. But in our scenario, we had six fantastic trainers on board. They were across Canada. So we were like, let's, let's just test this. Let's see if this works. And the quality of the training the experience of training, the feedback from training, 
just went absolutely through the roof. And I think too, at this point in time, as I said, we launched in the middle of COVID. So we ran five cohorts online or six cohorts online. And then things, things were opening and closing with COVID. And so we had an opportunity in September of 2021 to try out our first in-person training. And I went to it in Victoria. It was led by Dr. Bruce Tobin, Theracil's founder. And the experience that I felt being in that room, I can only imagine how the participants felt because they were going to be the ones doing this work. And so Bruce, myself, and the training committee said, okay, let's let's just try to do this completely in person moving forward. And that's the decision we made for January 22 onwards. And and it's been going great. I I don't regret it for a second. Amazing. That's so incredible. Yeah, congratulations. And congratulations to the team that you mentioned, the trainers that you've had that have all built that up over time. That must be so cool to witness now and like look back and see all the ripples that are spreading outwards from that and those initial cohorts because obviously like word of word of mouth is so important with those with this type of work i think and even with training like it's so important to hear from other people like oh yeah like the integrity of a training program and all that stuff so that's really beautiful to see that you guys have done such a good job laying that foundation and now it's only going to keep growing from there because the demand is growing and you guys have now you know established yourselves as, as a leader in training in canada and there really isn't a lot of people that can say that so that's really awesome thanks michael yeah. But the next question I want to ask for you was just if you could share a little bit more about your kind of personal role. And so, you know, we mentioned you're the director of training and operations at Theracil. Are you in charge of all of the operations at Theracil or just the operations around training? I'd be curious to hear a little bit more about your role and what does it look like day to day? What are you up to? Yeah, for sure. Well, we've got a fantastic team. So it's never just me. We've got an amazing team leading the charge here in at Theracil. And so I oversee over operations, finance, and HR of the organization. And then yes, my my baby is training. So <laughs> I'm really working on scaling our training program, liaising and filling out the program with our trainers. And then really, you know, we're constantly evolving. So recently we got approval for CE credits. Right now we're building out our experiential components. So I'm really working on strategizing on how to expand our training program. And then behind the scenes, our team is just doing amazing with the training operations, the training administration. And we're always, you know, meeting every Tuesday with our training, our little training team that's internal to to strategize on what's next for the organization. Amazing. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of exciting things for sure. I'd be curious to know what are some of the key training programs and initiatives that Theracil has developed already. You kind of spoke to that a little bit. And then maybe what are some of the key initiatives that you feel like you're looking ahead towards now? For sure. So our two main training initiatives right now are prescriber training and intensive training. So what we saw with our intensive training is we, folks who could take that program were, medical doctors, therapists, and nurses. But what we're seeing with Canada's current access route in the medical system is that we didn't have enough doctors feeling that they had the tools to apply for special access to psilocybin. 
So we recently on February 24th launched a prescriber training program, which is a very high level overview for prescribers such as nurse practitioners, doctors, and naturopathic doctors on how to fill out Canada's SAP program. What are the contraindications? What's the neurobiology and neuropharmacology of psilocybin? So they could have have the tools to apply for special access to Health Canada. So that's one of our training programs. Our next prescriber training is launching on June 12th and then August 25th. So we offer them, you know, three to five times a year. And then the program we've been working on for the last two years is our intensive training program. So that is a more robust training program that brings you through all, all stages of the psilocybin experience from preparation, dosing to integration. And that was kind of that in-person component I was speaking about earlier. And then, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to ask, just as a little bit of a side tangent definition, I was curious if you might be able to to describe for anyone that might be listening who doesn't know what the special access program is. Could you describe what that is? Yeah, for sure. So as of January 5th, 2022, Canadians can now access psilocybin if their doctor fills out a special access program application and sends it into Health Canada. Folks who are accepted need to meet eligibility criteria and they need to be diagnosed with treatment resistant depression, major depressive disorder, or have end of life distress. So right now we have created an automated system where patients applying through Theracil will have their application all drawn up, the form will self-populate, and then they will be referred to a Theracil-trained therapist to go through their application. If the therapist believes that they are eligible, they will then connect them with a Theracil-trained doctor who will submit their application to Health Canada. And then Health Canada will either approve, approve it or say that it's incomplete, in which case we may fill out more information. So Essentially, it's an application to Health Canada asking for special use of psilocybin for medical purposes. Okay, thanks so much for explaining that. And I'd be curious to ask, like, what the process kind of makes sense now. It's awesome that you have that kind of tiered level of Mm -hmm. interaction between the patient seeking access and treatment. Then it goes to, you mentioned the therapist, and then from there it goes to the prescriber, and then from there it goes to Health Canada. Is that right? That's right. It's a long process. Yeah, it's a long process, I imagine. So, of course, people, I'm sure there's lots of patients involved in that whole process, but it's still awesome that there's some sort of pathway there, right, to access. Mm-hmm. That's really incredible, given, like, when you look back, even just a few years ago, like, nothing like that existed. So, obviously, it's really awesome to see that's the case. I'd be curious to ask, like, can you share a little bit more about when the process gets to Health Canada? Like, what is that looking like these days in terms of, like, how often are these things approved? How often are they marked as incomplete? And like, is it do you, is it in general a really difficult thing to achieve, or is it something that is becoming more and more accessible now? Like, what's the what's the numbers kind of look like for that? It, I would say that the the special access program is actually denying access. It it is a slow process, and we are really pushing for medical regulations in Canada where this decision yeah. can be made between a doctor and their patient and not bureaucrats at Health Canada. Yeah. Um, so that's what we're pushing for. That's our end goal. That being said, we are working with Health Canada. Health Canada is, is trying their best to approve these special access program applications, but 
The application itself is quite onerous. It's okay. eight pages long. It will take a doctor about two hours to fill out, sometimes longer. And so by automating this process, it has taken taken some of the time out. I would say in Canada right now, there's probably 130 folks who have received special access to psilocybin over the last year and a half. It's, okay. it's better than nothing, but yeah. those numbers could be so much higher. And right. so- you know, what, what's really unfortunate is it is a bit of a pay to play system right now. And that's why we've had so many special, so many successful special access applications is if we do get an incomplete, we will push back, we'll fill out the remaining information, send it back. And if that still, if we're still, if the patient is still being questioned, we'll then file, we'll get our lawyers involved and file a mandamus. Nicholas Pope has been doing amazing work with Theracil and we, we can't thank him enough. He's the lawyer that's been really charging forward with these mandamus applications. And so then we'll file for judicial review. So what we're seeing in Canada right now is a pay to play system to access psilocybin when we get our lawyers involved. Can, can you just describe that a little bit more? I what, what exactly do you mean by pay to play system? So if we get an incomplete application, or if Health yeah. Canada says to one of the our patients, please go seek out electric convulsive therapy, we, we will then get our lawyers involved. They'll mm. file a mandamus application, essentially pushing for a response from Health Canada. And then generally okay. speaking, most of that applications come back. Right. So essentially, we're getting a lawyer involved for every right. application. Okay, I see what you mean. Yeah. Okay, it's good to hear about the the numbers that have gone through, and like you say, that's definitely better than nothing. Like that's so awesome that there's a pathway and that people are accessing through that. And so, mm -hmm. would you say that like a big part of their strategy now is like to really build up like the infrastructure around it, so that maybe like let's say right now Health Canada kind of does present itself as like a bit of a bottleneck for treatment. Like maybe that will change at some point. Like you say, you're pushing for these medical regulations. Are you trying to create like this infrastructure so that when that does shift, like you guys are kind of ready and like there's all these all these resources? Am I correct in kind of assuming that? That's right. So, you know, a big way to expand access is through trained healthcare professionals. So for when this explodes, there are folks on the ground who are ready to support these patients who are seeking okay. access because there's already so many people seeking access. And so if if regulations come into place, we can only expand those num numbers to, yeah, to completely blow up. Okay, a little bit of a funny question, but when do you think this will explode in your personal opinion? <laughs> oh, it really depends how this case goes. My my guess would be in three to five years. Okay. Hopefully sooner. Yeah, exciting. Just curious. Cool, mm -hmm. okay, well, thanks so much for sharing about those initiatives. And, and just some of the process, I think that's really helpful for people to understand. Because I know for, for me, even like, I, I know a little bit about what the special access program is, but it can get really confusing with some of like the, the different pathways and it's always changing. And so, yeah, I really appreciate you illuminating kind of what that pathway looks like. The next question I wanted to ask was just, if you could share a little bit about your opinion on like, what are some of the common challenges or misconceptions surrounding, you know, how we can get psychedelic assisted therapy into the mainstream, mainstream healthcare practices? And how does their so maybe address those, if any? For sure. I think I think there's many perhaps misconception misconceptions. I think 
I think one is there's a lot of, of buzz around psychedelics right now and really just educating folks that this is not a magic pill, that psychedelics are not for everyone and ensuring that, you know, there's so much fantastic research happening. But I think when some people read Michael Pollan's book, for example, they want to have a psilocybin journey and sometimes their expectations aren't met. So I think really educating folks on, you know, this isn't for everyone. These experiences are, are really hard. Start slow. Don't go right into, you know, a full strength dose. I think that is, is one potential misconception and where there's a lot of frustration happening for clients and patients. I think another misconception is that especially in BC, that psychedelics are super accessible and they're really easy to obtain. From one sense, yes, absolutely. There's, you know, five dispensaries in downtown Vancouver and it is very accessible in that case. But what we're really pushing for is a safe supply and legal access. I think in some of the older generations, especially, they really want to be accessing psychedelics legally. And so when, when we push for legal access, it, it isn't as accessible as just walking into a dispensary. So I think there's this interesting caveat where it seems like psilocybin is decriminalized in Vancouver and it feels mm -hmm. like it is, but, yeah. but it's really not. And we do have a long way to go. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Thanks for speaking to that. It can definitely feel like we're living in a bubble here in Vancouver, or even like the lower mainland with everything that's going on, like so progressive here, but I, I like that perspective, just like shifting outside of that bubble constantly to really remember that things look a lot different in most places in the world. And so it's like how to appeal to those different geographical populations, but also like you mentioned age too, there's an interesting one, like just mentioning like the different generations have different perspectives and safety comfort levels with psychedelics. And I would totally agree. I feel like, you know, people in the older generations are not going to feel as comfortable walking into like a dispensary right? Like they're going to want to access it through a more streamlined approach. And maybe they're going to even prefer to have like more of a clinical experience, or at least they want to be able to talk to their doctor about it, who like they trust and they've been seeing for like a long time, right? Exactly. And like, I was just going to say generations aside, lots of people just want to talk to their doctor, see what their doctor who they've been working with for many years thinks. Mm -hmm. And so to have that decision be made between a doctor and their client or patient, I think, would really expand access in in other ways totally um, for folks who who do feel that stigma still yeah and i wonder there's probably a lot of doctors out there that are really interested in this but they obviously can't recommend it to their patients like they want to share this but they can't and would you say that's true or like do you think there's also a big education piece that needs to happen with doctors like are most doctors aware of psilocybin therapy or psychedelic therapy or do you think this is something that maybe needs to also happen first is like just educating doctors and healthcare system I think once again, being in this BC bubble, it may feel at times that, you know, everyone knows about psychedelics and, and from some, and from one sense, yes, so many doctors are, are on board. Many other doctors are very hesitant. So by filling yeah. a special access application, they are taking full responsibility for the patient, not only in the psilocybin experience, but the years to come. Mm -hmm. So they want to ensure that they've got the proper safeguards in place in their practice. And what the colleges are asking for is, do you have training? 
are you engaging in ongoing supervision? And are you accessing these substances legally? So I think really ensuring that they have college approval, that there's a letter from their college and insurance providers signing them off because the doctors are also putting their licenses at stake when we don't have proper regulations in place. Right. Yeah, that's such an important point. I, I personally never really thought about that. Yeah, really interesting to to think about and such an important considerations for doctors, especially as you're moving into the regulation and like obviously people, professionals have worked really hard to get their licenses and obviously wouldn't want anything to happen to that. So it's a delicate balance trying to work through that. So thank you for speaking to that. The next question I wanted to ask you was just around collaboration in there. So like, I'm curious to know a little bit about what that looks like for you, like on a macro or micro scale, like how does there still collaborate with other organizations, researchers or policymakers to work towards these goals that you've just mentioned? For sure. So we are always trying to collaborate. We would much rather work together than in, in silos. So yeah, we're we're always, always trying to collaborate. And our, our CEO, Spencer, does such a fantastic job of doing that. I think, you know, from a reach research perspective, we are collaborating with several manufacturers under Project Solus, such as Lucy Scientific, Filament Health, Cygen. So we collaborate people with people in a research setting. We also collaborate with folks in a trading setting. So we're always, you know, working with various trainers who've got lots of various experiences, work at different organizations. And another way that we collaborate in training is through our online required webinars. So there's topics that are covered in our training, such as Indigenous teachings. We collaborate with Dr. Duncan Grady and his amazing teachings. Then there's ethics training, which we collaborate with Kylia Taylor. She's our ethics advisor. And then we are also collaborating with Jag Dahl. She's from Vancouver, an amazing pharmacist in the field, and she leads our neurobiology and neuropharmacology unit. So we are constantly looking for collaboration because, you know, we, we've got the absolute privilege of working with these experts who have such vast experience in the field. And those are only to name a few. Thank you so much for sharing that. One thing that stood out that I was curious if you could expand on more was Project Solace. I've never heard of that before. What is that? Yeah, for sure. So that is our research data project. And so okay. it essentially assesses patients' psilocybin experiences from preparation, dosing to integration. And we do research a research study with observational data based on the patient's experience with the manufacturer psilocybin. So these are all synthetic or natural extracts of psilocybin. And so that's the data collection project. Okay, nice. And that's data collection just to like help understand like all you mentioned, is that all parts of the journey? So like preparation, integration, journey and integration? Yeah. And their experience with that specific synthetic compound. Okay. Awesome. And is that synthetic compound just extracted psilocybin, like synthetic psilocybin? So filament health has a natural extract and others are synthetic psilocybin. Okay. Interesting. Okay, cool. I'm I'm curious to maybe dive into more to that, but I think that may be a topic for another time. For sure. I can connect you with our project Solus director, James. Okay. Yeah. Project. Okay, cool. 
So you kind of started speaking a little bit to it when you shared the different types of parties and stakeholders that you're working with. The next question I wanted to ask you and next topic I wanted to explore was like what your actual training process looks like. And the question is like, you know, what is the process for selecting and training therapists who work with Aerosol and what qualities or skills are valued in a therapist practicing psychedelic assisted therapy? I know that's a really big question. So we can kind of maybe take, go at it in like chunks. So maybe just starting with like the first part of it, like what is the process for selecting and training therapists who work with Aerosol? Could you share a little bit about like the criteria that you have and like how people apply and like what sort of people you work with? Obviously right now in the space, like there is a big, like there's the above ground space. There's lots of professionals working in that space, but there also is the underground space. And I do kind of like to bridge the two and like think about, you know, the different, there's obviously there's practitioners, facilitators, therapists, doctors, like all sorts of professionals that are working towards these goals. But when it comes to therapists training, you know, who is it for, who's it not for, What's your process there? For sure. So we are definitely focused on the medical model. And there are so many other gifted practitioners who are doing this work and who have, who are on the ground doing the work right now. Because Theracil is trying to work from a medical model. We currently accept medical doctors, registered nurses, nurse practitioners, therapists, psychiatrists, psychologists, as well as a couple spiritual practitioners into each cohort who are credentialed okay. because the spiritual component is so important to this work. So that's, yeah. that's who we currently are accepting. And we require that if you are a therapist doing this work, so holding primary responsibility for the patient, that you have a minimum of five years experience of clinical work in your given field. Okay. Thanks for sharing that. That's very clear. Um, and then The next kind of follow-up question to that, and maybe something to dive into a little bit, was just like the part around qualities and skills, like what qualities or skills are valued in a therapist practicing psycho-assisted therapy? I feel like this is probably something that you've iterated on, and I'd be curious to know, like, you know, you mentioned earlier, like the the training has gone through a lot of iterations since you launched it during COVID a couple of years ago. You've obviously, you said you had a lot of learnings. I'd be curious to maybe dive into, if you're willing to share a little bit about what those, some of those learnings might've been in regards to actually like the training content, like I, I can imagine it's like such a big task to try and take all of the different elements of psychedelic therapy and what makes good psychedelic therapy into one place. I'd be curious to know like what sort of stance does there still take? Cause obviously you mentioned some of the stakeholders you work with were indigenous folks. Obviously there's a, there's the whole shamanic indigenous ceremonial approach to psychedelic assisted therapy, or you could just say like psychedelic healing, but then there's also the more medical ap- approach that we're seeing evolve. And so I'm just curious to know like what, does Theracil borrow elements from lots of these different areas? You know, obviously you mentioned you're kind of leaning more towards like the medical access. So obviously it's going to be a little bit more medical, but like, could you share a little bit more about the content and like what you think, what you've learned from that process and maybe what skills you think are really valued in a therapist that's practicing with you guys? Yeah, absolutely. So it definitely is more focused from a Western perspective. That being said, we completely acknowledge that indigenous healers and teachers, they're, they're the true knowledge keepers of this medicine. And so we definitely try to incorporate indigenous knowledge and teachings from experts in the field. We've also expanded the ethics component of our training. We've, we've brought on experts regarding neurobiology and neuropharmacology. And we also I I will say that all of our trainings are different based on the trainer. So each trainer has their different flavor. 
For example, Dr. Bruce Tobin brings art therapy experiences into his trainings. Dr. Ingrid Pacey brings holotropic breathwork teachings into her training. So we, there's many different iterations of the training based on the trainer who's teaching. But over time, I think if anything, we've, we've bulked up, bulked up our training program to incorporate other elements based on the feedback that we've received and we've broken it into different components. So one thing that we just launched our group supervision sessions. And I think that really allows one-on-one supervision is fantastic, but group supervision will bring in different modalities, different ways of practicing and learning from one another. So that is something that we've just launched a few weeks ago. And I think there's, there's such beauty of learning in a group context. So that's why we've rolled that out. And also you know, as I said, each trainer has their own flavor, learning from different trainers and different supervisors on their methods is, is really, really important for participants in our training program. So they can, they can pull from others in the group, but also different trainers. I love hearing that. That's so awesome. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, there's, there's some supervisors who work more in the medical landscape and some who are more in the spiritual landscape. So I think blending is is always best to ensure that the patients are getting the best care based on their needs as well. Yeah, I really loved hearing the fact like there's just like the, that diversity of practice mm-hmm. there. And you're really leaning into the fact that all of these different facilitators have different areas of expertise and areas that they're proficient in. Has that been difficult to do from an operational perspective, given you're the one that's putting all the operations together? Like I can imagine obviously standardizing things is makes things easier, but then with this, you kind of are standardizing a procedure that also requires some flexibility. Has that been challenging or do you feel like it's been kind of just the natural flow? I, th- I think it's challenging to find the right people, but I think, yeah. you know, one of my favorite parts of my job is talking to people all day. So Mm -hmm. being able to meet with different practitioners and hear about their lineage and about what brought them to this work is, it's so fascinating. And our our program is quite robust. So you get to know these people over usually at least a year and, you know, hearing the work that they're doing and the, the work that they've done before is, is always fascinating. So yeah, I, I will always welcome diversity into the program. I think it's it's what's absolutely necessary in this work. Yeah, beautiful. I was wondering, just to kind of last kind of follow-up question around that topic, I'm curious if you might be open to sharing, just in your opinion, or maybe just from what you've seen with the trainings, obviously I know you don't maybe personally like engage in this work in the same way as the facilitators and, the, and maybe the people that are being trained, but like has there is there any kind of common threads that you've witnessed in terms of like the the traits that you think make a really good guide? Like, could you maybe speak to like three traits that you think really stand out through the training or things that values that they're so really kind of emphasizes with what people should kind of embody or foster in their guiding practice? For sure. So I think probably the most important one is that they've done their own work, right? So I truly believe a therapist can only take their clients or patients as far as they're willing to go. So 
having their own psychedelic experience, a full strength experience is so, so very crucial. I think, you know, there's a big difference as you would know between doing mushrooms in a forest and having a therapeutic mushroom dose and to ensure that they've got various psychedelic experiences that they can pull on while, while guiding a patient is, is so crucial because without that, I don't know if you can truly empathize and understand what the client's going through. So their own experience is, is very important. And one other thing I look for is people that are comfortable with the gray. There's so many unknowns in the space right now and people who are yes or no or black or white folks who don't who can't meet in the middle with the gray I think we try to avoid that because there is going to be so so many uncertainties so much evolving in the space and our processes change all the time so if you're uncomfortable with things kind of being stuck in the middle things being in the gray I think my, my main advice is to these practitioners is, you know, this might not be a good fit for you right now because there's so many unknowns, right. um, so overall openness and curiosity, I think is, is very crucial. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing those. Those are really concrete and practical kind of things to align with. So that's great. Kind of shifting back now away from the content of the training and to those specifics, shifting a little bit back to the overall trajectory with their self and the strategy, like working with government, working with Health Canada, I'd be really curious to just hear if you can share a little bit about like how the dialogue might have changed over the years with Health Canada. You know, obviously you're part, you're right at the front lines working with government. There's lots of conversations that I'm sure you and other members of your team are like having with government. You understand, you have a better idea of like where, what realistically, what rollout of psychedelics actually realistically looks like legally, right, in Canada, or at least you can suspect where things might be going. And I'd just be curious to know, like, what, how has that dialogue changed over the years? Has Health Canada kind of changed their tone regarding psychedelics? Are they still kind of in the same place relatively? Could you speak to that at all? For sure. So when I started with Theracil, the process for legal access was through the Section 56 exemption process. So pretty much a patient or a healthcare professional could apply on their own behalf and then a doctor would sign the form and they would then send it to Health Canada. This system was working really well. We were getting much greater access, but there wasn't a safe supply of psilocybin. So that was essentially the con of that system, but it worked really well. And Minister Patty Haiju, who was in office at the time, was extremely compassionate. And so she she moved to Indigenous Affairs after probably in October of 2021 or November of 2021. And at that point, we had two health ministers come in, Jeanne Duclos and Minister Caroline Bennett. And essentially, two ministers doubled the trouble. And then the whole scheme changed over from the Section 56 exemption process to SAP. And we're seeing access diminish. And so right okay. now, with their office, the SAP process was amended, and healthcare professionals are no longer gaining access to psilocybin, but we are that we do have a safe supply, which is fantastic. So what their office is really pushing for are clinical trials at this point in time. Okay, 
Good to know. That makes sense. Yeah, I guess it's it's crazy to think about how significant an effect like just personal like personality or even like personal opinion plays like regarding politics, right? Because that's kind of like where you're the level that you're working at. It's like even just individual position changes brings in a whole other perspective and 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 opinions about how this stuff should progress, if at all. So it's quite just interesting and to think about how much of an effect that has, right? Just like Absolutely. a single person. Absolutely. And, you know, it's, it's unfortunate to see access go down, but I'm hoping that we'll see a change yeah. in the next little bit with that. Yeah, me too. Awesome. Okay, well, thanks for sharing a little bit about that. You've kind of spoke to this already. The next question I want to ask you is just what your thoughts are on like decriminalization and legalization. We've spoken to this a little bit already with the goals of Theracil. But yeah, I'm just curious if there's anything else you wanted to share on that topic, maybe personally or, or from the perspective of Theracil, how you kind of see these two different pathways together or not. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, personally from an access point, it's I think it's fantastic that people can walk into a dispensary and get psilocybin readily accessible in Vancouver. Do I think decriminalization is working how Vancouver and BC wanted it to work? No, I don't know if the numbers are going down. In fact, I think mm -hmm. I saw in the news last week that they're actually up since decriminalization came into place with several substances right. in BC. So I don't, I don't know if it works per se. Psilocybin isn't decriminalized in BC. It feels like it's decriminalized. So I guess I can speak to it from that capacity and like I said, if people have the tools in place, if they've got guides to work with, if they're doing preparation, dosing and integration, and then they can readily access psilocybin, that's fantastic. My main concerns and what we're really pushing for is that people are held in a safe context. So they're working with their doctor and talking about contraindications. They have done the proper preparation with a licensed healthcare professional. They have two people in the room with them for the dosing session, and then they properly integrate their experience. So I worry with decriminalization, if folks do not have guides and they're just reading a book that says, you know, psilocybin could change your life. And then they go and have this huge full strength experience on their own. Well, that could cause a lot of harm. And so that's, that's my main concern with decriminal decriminalization. I think with other substances, it's, that have been decrim decriminalized in Vancouver, it is, it's fantastic that people aren't going to jail for this and can't be prosecuted mm -hmm. and instead maybe more open to, to getting help or treatment. But with psilocybin, it's not, it's not decriminalized. And I worry, I worry if there aren't the proper safeguards in place yeah. for people to actually have a safe experience. Yeah. Thanks for speaking to that. That makes total sense. Lots of, I guess, you know, drawbacks and benefits to kind of both. And yeah, it is really unique to always come back to the the unique situation that Vancouver's in. <laughs> Just yeah. like so many special uh, rules apply to us, I suppose. Yeah, um, absolutely. It does feel like a different world here. Yeah, totally. But yeah, it's interesting also to hear like those stats. I'd love to look into that and hear a little bit about how yeah what those stats are looking like i assume there when you're mentioning statistics you're talking about like kind of like opioid deaths or like like statistics around opioids or what exactly. were you speaking to and overdoses yeah. the book i'd recommend is san francisco and okay. 
it's it's fantastic it speaks about the opioid crisis and the homelessness crisis and how it's really the numbers on the west coast are just through the roof we don't see this on the east as much i i definitely recommend it yeah i would love to i never heard it before i'd love to maybe i'll follow up with you after and i can put that in the description i'll yeah, link to it sure. absolutely beautiful we got a little bit of time left here i just wanted to move on to a couple other questions for you i was curious like Zooming out a little bit, what are some of the long-term goals or visions that Thersil has for the integration of psychedelic therapy into the mainstream healthcare systems? You spoke briefly to this already, but I'm curious if you might be able to elaborate on that. For sure. So we like our main goal is that patients across Canada can access psilocybin by speaking to their doctor. So that that is our end goal. I think it's going to take some time to get there. And we've got mm -hmm. our charter challenge that we're supporting eight patient plaintiffs with. And, you know, that that is the end goal. That being said, for the time being, we're really just trying to push across access for as many Canadians as possible and, you know, help people reduce suffering. So I think one way to do that, of course, is through training. We're, we are trying to expand our training to Australia, where legalization or medicalization is happening on July 1st to help Australians gain safer access to psilocybin. Wow. Another way that we're hoping to do this is through a clinical trial. So we are currently in conjunction with Dr. Gaurav Gupta working on a clinical trial to help folks access legal psilocybin. And we're currently moving through the ethics procedure. So that's kind of our next very big goal is to just help people gain access legally. Mm -hmm. And thanks for sharing that. That's kind of looking to the future. I love that you kind of have that simple goal of just like that relationship between the patient and the doctor. I think that's such a practical thing to kind of move towards and totally agree that that would be such an awesome thing to have for so many people. So that's really awesome. Also really cool to hear that you're thinking of expanding to Australia. That's mm -hmm. incredible. I didn't know the exact date. I mean, I'd seen lots of stuff being announced there, but you're saying July 1st is when things are legalized there? For psychiatrists to prescribe psilocybin and, and MDMA to their patients. So psilocybin and MDMA. Okay, wow, that's awesome. Really cool to hear. Yeah, they're moving so, ahead. Yeah, do you, do you see that as being like almost pro providing inspiration for Canada? Like, are they in some ways moving ahead of us or what how do you compare like the regulatory framework you are dealing with here versus what they're going to have to start to deal with i'm i'm super super impressed with them for kind of fighting the bullet and moving forward i i worry about the lack of training and not having you know it's all it's it's very specific to psychiatrists psychiatrists yeah. also seen in alberta and okay going to cause major accessibility issues. Yeah. I don't know the number of psychiatrists that are accepting clients in Australia, but my guess is it would be very similar to the landscape in Canada. So in mm -hmm. Alberta, for example, there's the last I heard was that there was a wait list of 18 months to get access to a psychiatrist. And then on wow. top of that, the fees for a psychiatrist are very, very high. So we've got a huge accessibility issue that I don't know if Australia has thought about yet. And I hope they they really consider this to get more people access to psilocybin. But I think a great first step is rolling out regulations as of 
July 1st, and I, I hope Canada follows suit. In some ways, of course, by them doing this, they would be ahead of Canada per se, but I think Canada's really, they're, they're taking a slower approach and they've got more trainings on the ground than, than Australia does. Right. Okay. That makes sense. Interesting. That's crazy to hear that number that you just referenced for Alberta. I, that's a lot less than I would have thought. And to think that that, that wait time exists is kind of crazy. And then, like you say, compounding that wait time for a psychiatrist would then like the wait time for some of the legal hurdles that need to be moved through with just accessing psychedelics, it like adds up, right? It probably like compounds to quite a lot. Yeah, it's just very restrictive. And I think we also need to be mindful that like, these therapies can't only be for the rich. They need to be accessible. Yeah. They, and we need to work as a nation to make them more accessible. It can't just be this buzzword that only the rich can afford. Yeah, for sure. And that's, I think, the toughest thing <laughs> on the horizon to try and navigate because mm -hmm. even just with legalization and medicalization, I feel like there's inherent in at least some of the system that we have now like there are kind of barriers that will kind of shift automatically i feel like shift things in that direction of not being as accessible mm -hmm. unless there's some kind of change that takes place at some of that system level right and i feel like you guys are doing that with mm -hmm. with their cell too but it's just it's definitely challenging to think about how mm -hmm. it'll all be integrated because the at least right now like the, the existing kind of pharmaceutical industrial kind of complex is like so interwoven with so many other aspects of these systems that I think will make it tricky, but yeah, it's awesome that you guys are paving the way there. Thanks, Michael. Yeah. The next question that I had for you was just asking if you could maybe just share a little bit more about there. So in terms of, you know, look, you've just shared about what you're looking ahead towards, but could you also just reflect a little bit looking back on all the awesome things that Therso has done. We've kind of done that by visiting some of these topics already, but I'm curious to hear from your perspective, like what are some of the major milestones that Therso has already achieved like since its inception? And, you know, was there any of those that really stood out to you? Maybe like uh, that you were personally involved with that really like exemplified to you, maybe like why you do this kind of work or made you really excited for the future of psychedelics? Absolutely. And I think, you know, the, the main one, of course, is they're still supporting the first patients in Canada in accessing legal psychedelics after 50 years. I think that was just such a testament to the team and to the healthcare professionals and the patients and just really showing that advocacy work, it works and amp we can amplify your voice and make change as a very small group. I think there's probably 15 or there's 19 people advocating for that change to happen and to see Canada come behind it, that it still gives me shivers. I think that is by far the, the biggest thing that has happened at an organizational level. And I think any time an SAP comes through or a Section 56 exemption comes through, the team gets so excited because it's one more person that will be helped and hopefully find some relief with any anything they're struggling with. So that's always an exciting milestone. As for myself, it it has seen it's been seeing the growth of the training program and to see, you know, what it started with, but with 
our first syllabus of 1.1.0, and now we're at syllabus 2.7, and just seeing how many people are involved in our community, there's that's the only way that that we've had the success we have is with the countless healthcare professionals, patients, and supporters that have stood behind us. So that was that's a continuous big one. And then more recently, I think what got me very excited was when RAMQ, which is Quebec's med public medical service provider, supported one of Theracil's supported patients in accessing legal psilocybin and covered their whole treatment from start to finish with two doctors, Dr. Human Farzan and Dr. Jean-Francois Stefan, who are Theracil trainers. So they were both, they both supported this patient and Quebec through their billing system covered the patient and two doctors for the whole experience. So just seeing, seeing the potential in Canada, seeing that people are seeing, yeah, seeing the government stand behind at a provincial level, these patients is, it's just so inspiring. And I know that as an organization, we can hopefully get provincial coverage across the country. So that was super, super exciting. That's super exciting. Thanks for sharing that. I didn't know that. That's really yeah. awesome to hear. Yeah, it's it's huge. And I we've spoken about it a lot today, but the problem with these medicines is they are not accessible. So, and there would be so much more healing if if it was accessible to everyone. So if we could put it through public health care, so it's not private pay or through extended medical, it would make such impact in opening the doors up for folks. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. So exciting. That's so, so great that you have so many things to, to name off there. So it's great to hear that this work obviously really inspires you and like lights you up. So that's a wonderful place to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One thing I want to ask you was, is there anything that surprises you about working in the psychedelic space or working with Theracil? Like, is there a theme that's come up throughout your work that kind of like always makes you kind of turn your head a little bit? I know this can sometimes be a tough question. And if you can't think of anything, that's fine. But yeah, is there, is there anything that kind of stands out as being maybe surprising about the work that you do? I, I think it mostly surprises me when people are starting these big companies and then they don't have any psychedelic experience. It, it more so scares me right. um, than anything. And it just makes me curious <sighs> about the reasoning for starting these organizations and totally. intentions are aligned. So I think it it scares me more than surprises me when people just say, "Oh, I've done my research." And right. Yeah, it it worries me. Yeah. I think more recently what surprised me is how many organizations are kind of closing their doors. I think in some in some ways it's perhaps needed for the space, especially if, you know, the value system or alignment isn't there, but in other ways yeah. it theory like I I want I don't want people to lose faith in the psychedelic community and I I think I think there are some people questioning psychedelic benefits right now and I I really hope that that we can we can show the benefits and help as many people as possible yeah me too yeah like I've seen that as well maybe not I, I don't definitely don't know to the extent of it, but even just close to home, I know a couple of clinics and, mm -hmm. you know, centers that, yeah, I've, I've mm -hmm. kind of shifted and 
unfortunately had to close the door. So yeah, it is, it is surprising to see too. Share that. Yeah. I'm surprised with you. It's like we're going down the same route as cannabis in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Well, thanks for sharing those. Mm -hmm. Uh, Last two questions here for you, more personal. I'm curious if you could, you know, if you go back in time and give your younger self some advice, what would it be? Hmm. I I think just to remain open. Yeah. Psychedelics have changed my life and so many people around me. And I, I like to reflect back on my younger self before. And I reflect back often. And the level of judgment that was there, I think just from growing up in a fairly conservative household, I had a lot of judgment about drugs and little did I know that these substances would be, you know, completely changing my life only a few years later. So I think just remaining open and remaining curious is really, really crucial. And, you know, giving, giving substances a chance before having those judgments. And yeah, I think that would be the main, main thing. Remain curious and just keep asking questions. That's awesome. That's so beautiful. And then throughout your journey, getting into psychedelic space is, are there any particular people or figures that kind of stand out to you that have really like helped you along, like maybe your knowledge journey with psychedelics, maybe particular practitioners or therapists that come to mind that really inspire you. Maybe it's more like people on the philosophy side of things. Yeah. Is there any like psychedelic heroes that you have and might want to share with the folks listening? Yeah, for sure. So I've always loved Dr. Julie Holland's work. She she really inspired me with, with her books, such as Good Chemistry. Yeah, she's, she's a brilliant woman in the space. And then of course, I'm, I'm surrounded by such fantastic mentors in the psychedelic space, such as Dr. Bruce Tobin, Dr. Ingrid Pacey, Steve Rio. I love having conversations with all of them, with our trainers. And yeah, just they're all doing such amazing work in the psychedelic space. And, you know, Dr. Dr. Bruce Tobin has really been pioneering like legal access in Canada. So I think we owe a lot to him for, for really spearheading this back in 2017 and amplifying patients' voices and, and starting Therosol. Yeah, that's amazing. I haven't read one of Julie Holland's books yet, but I've been hearing about her quite a bit recently. So I've got to, I didn't realize that one of her books was Ecstasy, The Complete Guide. I remember seeing that around when Maps Canada used to sell books. That was one of the big ones that was always shared, but this good chemistry looks really interesting. Yeah, she's fantastic and just so level-headed. She actually wrote the foreword for Amanda Siebert's psyched book. Nice. Okay. Maybe that's where I also saw her name. Okay. Yeah. That's good to know. Definitely. Cool. A possibility. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's so wonderful. Thank you so much for being so open about the work that you're doing and for sharing everything that you did with us today. I wanted to maybe just end the episode today by inviting you to share maybe some of the upcoming ways and opportunities that people can get involved with Therosil. Maybe you want to share like where people can find you specifically Obviously, people can go to, they can Google Theracell and find the Theracell website. But yeah, is there any like opportunities that you want people to be aware of? Any things, maybe like advocacy initiatives that you really want people to get behind in the coming months? If there's anything that you want to share with the audience, please, would love, would love you to do so. 
Yeah, absolutely. There's always more advocacy work to be done. So if you're wanting to get involved with advocacy or training, you can email support at therisil.ca. If you are a patient who is interested in essentially getting access to legal psilocybin, you can email patients at therisil.ca. And yeah, we are constantly advocating, constantly writing letters to MPs and trying to meet with government officials. So if you're wanting to get involved in any way, we'd love to hear from you. And then we've got, of course got two trainings per month um, and our prescriber training launching on June 12th and August 25th. So we'd love to hear from anyone. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Yasmin. It was a pleasure to chat today. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Uh, thank you so much, Michael. So great catching up.